Welcome to the Autism and Neurodiversity Podcast. We're here to bring you helpful information from leading experts and give you effective tools and support. I'm Jason Grigla, a licensed counselor and founder of Techie for Life, a specialized mentoring program for neurodiverse young adults. And I'm Debbie Grigla, a certified life coach. And maybe most importantly, we're also parents to our own atypical young adults. Hello, friends. Welcome. So today we brought on someone to talk about tutoring. And I know we talk a lot on this podcast about focusing on the other areas of development and not just on academics, but it's really helpful to get access to great tutoring to take away some of the issues that come up with academics. If they're struggling in that area, that starts to take over all the time. And so to be able to get good tutoring and get that that piece settled in frees up time for more things like extracurriculars or friends. And so we're excited to have you here from Laura Reber. She's a school psychologist and founder of Progress Parade. And at Progress Parade, they understand your differences and help you be able to create strengths from that. And they provide one-to-one online tutoring with handpicked specialists for students that have been diagnosed with ADHD, learning disabilities, executive functioning challenges, autism, and more. And Laura works with a team of school psychologists and specialized teachers to create personalized approaches for homework support, academic intervention, homeschooling, unschooling, and more. And what do you mean by unschooling? Welcome to the show, by the way, Laura. Hi, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yes. What do we mean by unschooling? Yeah. Unschooling, I think, is something that's gaining more popularity. Um, It really just means kind of undoing some of the negative academic experiences that many students have in a traditional school environment. So um, I think what unschooling means to a a person who's looking for unschooling depends a lot on who they are. And that's part of every intake call that we do with a potential student or client is kind of trying to understand where they're coming from and what their goals are. But in general, what unschooling means is undoing some of the damage that has been done in a particular school setting. You know, some students have really negative experiences. They gain uh, really negative views. They start to hate school. They start to think they're stupid. They start to think they're failing. They're going to fail no matter what school environment they're in. So so it's still um, edu- it's still education, right? It's just about yeah. doing it in the the round hole with square pegs that maybe haven't fit very well into the typical procedural. Correct. Class. Yeah, and a lot of people view unschooling as kind of per- pursuing a child's passion. So, so uh, unschooling, a lot of times the focus is how can we develop this student's passion. So they're learning. They have act- they have goals. They have things that they're learning, but it's not. It is usually much more, much less like regimented that, you know, most unschooling parents are like, I don't care about common core curriculum. I don't care about, you know, traditional states testing. I want my students to make progress on things they're passionate about outside of the status quo. Right. So I didn't mean to interrupt. Sorry, Debbie. Yeah. You can finish your introduction, but Laura (laughs) is valedictorian with a bachelor's degree in psychology from Truman State University. Um, She has her specialty and experience in school psychology. Um, as well as uh, higher education and more more learning from Illinois State University. So you've been working as a school psychologist for over 10 years, and you you started this program. What what made you start this this company? 
It's a great question. I was working as a school psychologist in the public schools in a suburb of Chicago. And I just realized, you know, as a school psychologist in the school, so much of my day was about diagnosing students. Uh, if, if anybody, if you or anybody listening has interacted with your school psychologist at your school, it's usually through a testing capacity. Um, and so usually like if you think your student has a disability or qualifies for services at school, it's usually the school psychologist who's heavily involved in that testing. So that's what I was doing. Um, I didn't like it, to be honest. I was like, this is um, not what I want to be doing. I think mainly because of a lot of the limitations around what services students were getting at schools. And I thought like, I have a lot of skills. I was trained in social emotional support, academic support as a part of my graduate training. So what am I most passionate about that I can do? Because I, I know I'm passionate about this field um, of supporting all learners, but I know I don't want to continue in this role. So I yeah, thought academic kinda, intervention. Yeah, go ahead. You kind of get forced to be the gatekeeper for money instead yeah. of being able to help people. And most people go into the social sciences, psychology for other reasons. And it sounds like yeah. you can make a difference in people's lives, maybe more personally. It sounds like. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And there was a lot of just really difficult decisions with diagnoses. I mean, we don't have to spend too much time on this, but just trying to decide which students had learning disabilities. And a lot of them had really complex um, in the district I was in. It was primarily um, Spanish speakers. So trying to tease apart, like, is this really a language? Is this really a language issue or is this a learning disability? And having to make those difficult decisions every day about do I diagnose a student with a learning disability, even though it might really be language issues, but if I don't diagnose them, they don't get services. So, you know, those, those kinds of decisions um, are, are hard, you know, and there's um, that all is what goes into being a school psychologist in the school. So I really wanted to see the impact of um, when I was in graduate school, my favorite rotation that we did when we were learning about all these different aspects was the academic intervention rotation was the fancy term for it, essentially tutoring. Um, and that was my favorite. So I'm like, I'm going to focus on that. So I started um, tutoring myself. I, I wasn't tutoring myself. I did the tutoring for students <laughs> um, and just saw some huge gains in my first couple of students. I saw the power of the one-on-one -on -one support uh, and I saw the power of just giving a student what they need outside of all the requirements of what a school has, all the kind of red tape around deciding what students get at school. So that's that's when I kind of knew this is what I wanted to do. I know when, and I've had children that I've taken care of that that struggle in school and really do have challenges. And it's so frustrating and it's so hard to see your child not making it and, and really struggling. So how do you shift that? Like, what are some of the key things in being able to turn that into like a positive and not just this weight that drags them down? All school's school. a burden. School's going to be a problem. It's going to be yeah. a negative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the key things, I mean, there's several things that several components, I think, that help help turn your learning challenge into a life changing achievement. Um, I think one of them that's really important, if it's possible, is is starting early with the support. So, you know, um, and if, if somebody's listening to this and they say, well, I didn't start early, we can talk about that too. It's not a deal breaker if you didn't start early, but if you can, I think that really helps before the student has kind of amassed this whole years of, of negative self in school story. You know, I think it really becomes a narrative that the students are 
talking to themselves a lot about like, I suck at school. Like I can't do this. Like I'm stupid, you know, and those are, those are messages that compile over time. Um, the more kind of messages they get that everything they do at school is wrong. Uh, that no matter how hard they try, they can't improve this thing. So I think first one is, is early, you know, a lot of, I hear a lot of parents that, um, get feedback, for example, from their first grade teacher on reading. Well, like, I think they'll just catch up. So don't worry about it right now. And I'm like, no, don't, that's not the advice I would give. Like, don't wait and see if you're seeing a concern, if you're seeing a challenge, do something sooner rather than later, because first of all, the, the, the longer, the longer you wait, the more complex the issue seems it gets, you know, like at begin when you're first learning to read it's letter sounds and, um, all, you know, a lot of different kind of foundational skills, but if you wait now there's their peers are going to be at a higher level, even to kind of catch them up to. So early intervention helps from both a standpoint of their self-talk and attitude, but also from the complexity of academic skills that are needed. I love that you bring that up first, because I think there's some stigma around it. And it's this like wanting to wait and maybe don't, we don't, you know, if we, if we go get help, that means we're actually needing help. And maybe there's some shame in that, but I love the idea of like, let's, let's get help before it's this big, huge problem and, and catch it early and probably avoid a lot of frustration and struggles later on. Parents are like, well, but my child is so smart in these, in this way, they're, they're smarter than I am. Why would I need a tutor? I think the mentality is that tutoring is really just about the, the content of the educational subject when the majority of the benefit from tutoring that we have at our school and for our children is much more about the social skills, the soft skills, and to avoid like the pitfalls. Like you said, a stitch in time saves nine. Oh, to get them learning that they can actually do hard classes and do homework before they have crises and have learned that I can't, I suck, I'm stupid, I'm going to fail. That is so much more work. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, the tutoring that we do, it depends on, I mean, the, the plan we make totally depends on the student that comes in, but so many of our students do need help just kind of with a lot of like what you said, the soft skills, like maybe it's not that they're, you know, so many of our parents say my students so smart and the teachers know they're smart and that's part of their problem is that they think they should be able to do more than they're doing, you know, and that almost makes their smartness almost makes it worse because it's not obvious that they need help or it's not obvious what they're struggling with. So it almost creates a bigger discrepancy between what they're doing and what the teachers are expecting of them. So yes, I think a lot of our students come in saying that, and we work on a lot of those softer skills. um, Like, yeah, how do I organize myself? Like how maybe I, and honestly, this last year in particular, a lot of, a lot of schools made sort of haphazard transitions to remote learning and didn't always have it organized in a way that anybody could really right. <laughs> like understand, like how, yeah. How do I find my assignments? Like where are they posted? Nobody knew what they were doing. <laughs> yeah. 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 Our, so, you know, yeah, go one ahead. One of our big problems was when, when, when one of our really smart students in their specific area of interest, like history or art they'll go in to a classroom and fail miserably even though they really did know more than the professor at college because they they had these soft skill issues with personal interaction or anxiety or lack of nuance and our students just need lots of interaction and touches with I think what's acceptable and effective um, in their development so I love tutoring it all the time so I I was curious how do you train or what do you do for your tutors 
besides the content area of just math or just writing? Any help or support in in preparing them for the fact that you're tutoring, you know, special ed or or students with learning differences that are going to be difficult with anxiety? How do you manage some of those with your tutors? Do you train them to give them extra support? So a couple of different things. First of all, we handpick tutors that are are trained in, in special needs. So our tutors are school psychologists or learning behavior specialists. So they do have a lot of background already in, um, in diverse learners. And we also match based on the tutor's expertise and the student's needs. So that's one of the really, I know there's pros and cons to everything, including online tutoring. But one of the huge pros is that I, you know, I don't have to match based on geography. So like if I know a tutor specialty is I love high school executive functioning with students on the autism spectrum, like that's what I like, you know, that's what I do. Then I, when we get it, when we get a student that matches that we can, we can match them. So our tutors do have like really specific areas of expertise. That's so important when, when you're looking at matching a student with a disability or diverse learning need what do they need specifically? Because just having somebody trained even in working with students with disabilities might not be the right fit for your student, either from a personality perspective or from a skills perspective. Um, some of our students need like multi-sensory reading instructions. So it's important that we get them matched with an, a Wilson or an Orton Gillingham trained tutor for, you know, if some of your listeners have, have worked with um, some of their students might have dyslexia and, and need those, those programs. So the first thing is the match. Like that's really what the heart of what I do um, is. I love, I love making those matches with the tutor who can just say like, I know exactly what to do here and I'm going to make a huge difference for the student and the student who says I'm getting exactly what I need. This person is like completing my sentences about like my struggles, you know? Um, So that's the biggest thing. And then we do also consult with each other. So Um, you know, since we do have a big team of tutors with different areas of expertise, if there are things that come up, uh, that they don't feel like they, they need a little support, then we can support them in various ways, either through resources or consultation time with another tutor who's an expertise in that area. And also, you know, obviously everything runs through me when there's a challenge. So I have a lot of expertise to, to kind of help out too. So, so do you have any tips for ways to help your child? practice executive functioning skills at home. And what is that? Like explain that to from around a lot, but. um. Yeah. Executive functioning is definitely become, especially in the last like decade, a term that people talk a lot about. um, And it sounds like a really fancy, fancy term, I think. Um, So executive functioning skills um, are really the way we think about them a lot are, you know, the skills that you need kind of around school. So a lot of the organization skills, time management, impulse control is a huge one. And then also like deciding not to do something. So that's like inhibition. Like you, you know, in order to get your homework done, you have to decide not to do something you want to do in favor of doing, you know, not to play the video game and instead to get your homework done. So inhibition is also a big executive functioning skill. I think a great example that we've had to teach our kids is, look, you have five assignments due you have only enough time for three, which three are you going to, are you going to choose? Yeah. Or can you get 70% done and move on to the next one? Because that's more important that that nuance is definitely. The prioritization. Yeah. is huge. Yeah. College kids and high school kids have to juggle that sometimes. Definitely. Yeah. So, um, 
So yeah, so that's kind of a summary of what executive functioning skills are. Um, as far as how to work on them in the summer, I think uh, a lot of people overthink executive functioning skills. I think, you know, we think about the school year, which is like, yeah, planners, time management, making sure you know how to use your portal, whatever that is, like whatever, inter- you know, whatever interaction the school has given your student in order to see what what's assigned to them and what they have to do. So that's what we think of during the school year. During the summer, we really don't need to think about executive functioning in, in the terms of school. We can really, there's so many fun things that you can do that really help your kids practice the planning skills, the organization, the inhibition, which inhibition again means choosing not to do something, to do something to get them towards that goal. So um, so some, some fun ones I like to bring up are, um, are planning like a sports tournament if, if your students into sports or or even a tournament for like a video game if your students into video games like it requires you to it requires your student to decide like the matches like who's going to be who's going to make you know the best teams in the sports tournament like how are you going to schedule it where is it going to take place all those anything that you can do to practice kind of those logistical planning details like what things do you have to do what things do you need to do to make sure that this day goes off without a hitch, you know, like what things need to be in place, things like that. So I I love the idea of like a sports or video game tournament that they're organizing. I also love um, one thing I've encouraged our families to do is field trip Fridays. Um, A lot of times in the summer, there's things that are open like museums or different exhibits or even um, water parks or things like that. And just having them be responsible for planning it. So um, what a great opportunity to something that the mom... (laughs) or dad might be doing all the work for and actually use that as a teaching opportunity and build that life skill that will serve them their whole life to be able to like, how do you plan around that? And I love that yeah. idea. Yeah. And even just teaching them some super practical skills, like, well, how are we going to get there? You know, like, I think a lot of times parents just, it's easier to just do that, <laughs> like make that decision, but it's a great teaching moment for like, just the logistics around yeah. How are we going to get there? Is it, you know, do we have to pay to park? What kind of money do we need? That's, and that also builds in like math skills. Like how much money am I going to need for this day? You know, how many students, how many kids do I have? Like how many entrances do I have to pay? How do I get their parking? So that's the big one that, and it's, and it, and if you do a, a several different field trips, it gives like a lot of different types of practice, you know, to be in, in charge of like, risk. It's yeah. A risk, right. Opportunity. You know, yeah. Thing. Yeah we're just going to go have fun. So how do we make this? Yeah, fun? totally. So that's another one I really I like. Love it. I love that that connects reality to what learning is supposed to be. The, the unschooling philosophy that you're here to learn math because you have to learn math instead of sometimes you need math in life, practical math. Sometimes you need executive functioning to plan a life to sometimes you have to look forward and backwards to figure out how to do things in the present. And our students aren't usually good at that. So right. I love that it's all practical down to earth and it's connected to reality. And it's fun, right? You see, like, I actually need these skills to have fun. It's important to like, yeah, to my daily life. I think that's a, that's a really important connection. I think of all the tasks parents do for their kids. And I think, well, quit making lunches for them. You know, let's spend a little bit of extra time teaching them how to do three or four things. And then, yeah, it takes a lot of work up front, but then it's front loading and the long-term benefit is you don't have to make lunches for them anymore and they get yeah. to so just about anything a parent does for their kid. They could spend some, some time and make that about practicing. 
Yeah. I heard a really powerful talk that changed my life. This says really the only way to truly multiply, you can't create time. So the only way to multiply your time is to give away things that you're doing to somebody else, you know? So, um, I love, so that's kind of reminds me of that. Like if you, you know, a parent, we're always overwhelmed and overloaded. So that's a way to multiply your time. Like give use, spend the time at the front to teach your child to make their own lunch. And then that's time you've gotten back. <laughs> so, yeah. And it's a skill they've gained more, you know, as importantly. So. Absolutely. And the, the, the other thought I have with the field trip idea too, is there's that incentive, like we're going to have fun. So they're going to, they're going to be more likely to push through and figure it out because they want to go do this fun thing. It's hard to do that. With yeah. A homework assignment that feels boring and tedious, but when it's, I can figure when this out. Mm-hmm. And if you approach mm-hmm. it in a place of like, well, I don't know how, what can we do? How do we want to do this and, and help them start to, to. <laughs> don't be so quick to solve their problems. Uh-huh. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I like definitely. Practicing. Yeah. I like practicing when it's attached to things they want to do instead of the hard stuff that we don't ever want to do. Yeah. And I think the summers, that's kind of my point for the summer is it's a great opportunity to kind of show like, Hey, these are some skills that you need at school, but let's not use school to practice it. Let's practice it in a fun way. You know, that shows you that this is why it's important, you know, really to achieve your goals, whatever those goals are, you need some of these skills, you know, you need to be able to plan. You need to be able to organize. You need to be able to prioritize one thing over another thing. So yeah, those are, those are are some good ways to practice. And even if they fail at it, like you, they weren't prepared or they didn't think of it. That's like another learning opportunity. Okay. Well, so next time we want to make sure we take water or like whatever. Yeah, definitely. So more successful. And I think parents, parents will do better if they make the mental shift from our goal is not to make it to the water park and have a lot of fun. Our goal is actually to let them plan it and practice getting to the water park and having fun so that if and when it does go really bad the first couple of times, that's okay because the goal wasn't to go have fun. Right. Because then the parent's not frustrated that the kid, you didn't plan this, how could we didn't do that? And then it's lecture. And now it's back to that negative yeah. cycle that, that it's so easy to fall into as parents. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, your first question was how to turn life changing, how to turn learning challenges into life changing achievements. And I can tie this back in. One thing that's really important is to make the goal achievable, you know? So I've talked to so many parents that are like, my students fail, you know, they failed three classes uh, in the fall, in the spring term. So now we're going to take the classes they failed plus other classes. And I'm like, okay, that's not, if they failed, you know, you can't just like stack it all together. That's not going to be achievable if they already weren't completing, you know, the one, the half of the one term. So that's, you know, it's really important to make achievable goals. I know our goal is that they get all these classes done, but just trying to do them all at once is just going to create more of a failure cycle, you know? So I think it's same thing for the executive functioning skills. I mean, parents know their children better than anybody. So they're going to kind of know what parts of this are going to be hard and what parts are going to be easy. So it's important to kind of give them just the right mix of like easy stuff that they know they can handle and stuff that's going to be a challenge so that it doesn't feel like way over their head as far as difficulty, you know, I, as a parent, I know how they're feeling when they say, well, look, you failed those classes because you played video games all night and didn't do assignments this semester, you know, to be a good dad, I have to make you hold you. I have to hold you accountable for what you did. 
And I'm going to prove to you that you're smart enough. I can see all the ways a parent could rationalize yeah. turning a bad situation into a way worse situation. Yeah. Instead of the goal is to have a positive experience that builds their development, not get a grade and get a credit. I think right. we focus on the credit, the, de- the degree or the diploma too much and not the experience and the development that goes on. Because a degree, we don't use most of the information we get out of a degree, but companies want want us to have a degree because it shows that we were able to manage college and manage things we didn't like to do and manage enough teachers that were crappy and good to know that we can work Mm -hmm. with coworkers. And right. There's a lot of soft skills. Um, Well, and it shows like a huge amount of long-term planning. I mean, to get a degree, the amount of times you have to choose to do your schoolwork instead of doing something else that you would rather be doing and the amount of, um, all those pieces of executive functioning, prioritization, long-term planning, inhibition, it shows that you could do all that enough to I've get a seen degree. Parents, I've seen parents help their kids get their degree to the point where they were doing homework. Yep. And, you know, to some point, I think all of us needed help. I needed Debbie to sit by me when I wrote papers or I couldn't have written them. I was just too overwhelmed with that blank screen. Even in college, after we were married, she had to come and sit by me or type for me so I could just get it get done. The ideas, I yeah, it. yeah. Uh, I think parents are wise when they realize the goal here is development and practicing executive functioning, not getting the degree. The degree doesn't right. equate to success. Um, right. The skills are what you really need. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So summer's going to come to an end for students who've taken a break and the parents are just exhausted. And they just let their kid go all summer. Uh, how can they... I, I know right now there's probably parents listening that are having anxiety that school and the IEP meetings are going to start again. And I'm going to start having to deal with homework and be their executive functioning for them. What are some tips you could give that might lower that anxiety or help the student actually prepare to go back into um, a scheduled expectation situation like school is? Which, which those trends transitions are really challenging for our kids with learning differences, especially yeah. autistic and even definitely they don't do well with transitions. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I've been reflecting on this because um, looking at like adults and how their workplaces have, tr- have transitioned them back. I've hardly seen any workplace that's been like zero days at work, a hundred days, a hundred percent of the days at work, you know, there's, it's almost always been like, take a couple days back. Like what's our transition plan? I understand why schools are doing this, but it does much more seem like they're just like, all right, vaccines are working, like all back to normal. You know, um, I think uh, last year, a lot of schools that, w- that were in person had, I've heard this from several parents that they had kind of really clear guidelines on like where they needed to be in the classroom, you know, like kind of like an autistic student having a visual around their desk of like what their personal space was. It's like almost everybody had that, you know, because because of COVID, you know, so there was just like a ton of structure in this past school year. Um, and I think a lot of that will be disappearing as we go back more to, towards normal. So I think one thing that parents really need to consider is, is being that transition for our students, you know, so because I don't think it's going to be as much there for the schools. So, you know, towards the end of the summer, trying to get as close as possible to the routine that they're going to have. So, you know, trying to make sure that they know what time they have to be up and and at the school and trying to eat lunch around the same times. I mean, that's something really simple, but let's do the simple things that we can to like 
minimize just the emotional, you know, and, and biological reactions. Like if I'm hungry because I'm not used to eating at this time, that's going to exacerbate all of my other transition challenges. So that's one really simple one. I think um, a lot of students have a really different social life this past year than they've had when they're in school. So I know a lot of parents had sort of pandemic pods or might've been seeing their family more. I think if your student has lost touch with their school friends, the summer is a really great time to reestablish those school connections so that they have, you know, just when they're transitioning back, that they're used to seeing their friends again. I think I've heard from a lot of parents that the past year socially is nothing, you know, is nothing like the pre before that. So they, they, they may not have seen much of their social of their same social circle from school. So that's another one that I think could be helpful. I love um, that idea because it, it's comforting and you're like doing it together, not just all along back to the the scary yeah. theme, but like, oh, I've got friends and we're talking about school. And that I think I think that's really helpful. Yeah, to make sure you have that support there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then I think, you know, one that could benefit a lot of students is just getting being as prepared, prepared as you can. So I think parents and any parent with a diverse learner has to be somewhat used to being the squeaky wheel. So I think trying to get a hold of the teacher and ask, like, what is this you're going to look like? What is going to be expected of my student? Like, where, what's the schedule look like? Is he, is he or she going to need to wear a mask? Like, is, what are the social distancing requirements? Like, what are the rules that are in place for this post-COVID year to try to just be able to prepare for those. However, it works for your student, whether through conversations or social stories. But I think any kind of preparation to, through conversations or through visuals to help the child understand kind of what the, what is the school you're going to look like. The schools aren't necessarily thinking of diverse learners in their transition plans and how they're going to respond to just this sudden change from the structure of last year. So what's the benefit of social stories? Explain that a little bit and what they are. Yeah, so social stories um, can benefit a lot of students who just need help with transitions, who need help preparing for what's coming. So a social story um, can take many different forms. It's, it's, but essentially at its core, it's describing something that's coming in a story form. So making a story out of, of something that your child's going to encounter or needs to understand. So there was actually a lot of so- social stories made about the pandemic. When, if you Google that, like there's tons of results that come up that kind of just explain through pictures and just kind of in a story form what happened in the past year. So, it, so it, a really brief example could be like, I'm going to be returning to school you know, in the fall because the vaccinations have been effective. Like we're able to return to, you know, what, what school was like a couple of years ago. And here's are some things that here's our thing. Some things my teacher told me I need to know. I need to know that we have to wear masks when we're coming in the building. I need to know that when I'm at my desk, I don't wear a mask. And, you know, so that's just kind of a really basic example, but it's kind of turning the transition that's coming into a story form that you can repeat a few times and you can add pictures to it if that benefits your child too. There's a couple of reasons why that would be critical for neurodiverse brains one they don't think about the future very well on their own right and two their anxiety comes from a lot of unknowns they imagine anything and everything all at the same time about anything in the future that is the unknown so once they say it out loud it's like they own it and it becomes a reality and then it's self-fulfilling prophecy whatever they chose to make their story about and so i love i love that approach 
for our students, it would be like, okay, so I'm starting classes this week. I'm going to, I sat at the front row and I actually turned and asked the person next to me a question that I thought of that would be helpful, but not weird. And then I didn't speak more than the other students did, but I didn't not speak at all. I actually took my, my turn and I took my time and I, I love that. Then they imagine it and then it's like, oh, I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, developmentally, if your student's more responsive to the conversation, it doesn't have to be like a written out social story, but I think like whatever we can do to just take away the unknowns and think about the future and what that's going to look like will be very helpful because I think neurotypical students, yeah, they can bounce back in more easily. Like, Oh, this was what it was like before. I'm fine. I, you know, with all this extra structure removed, but that can be very anxiety provoking um, for really any student, but especially um, neurodiverse students. So, yeah, I love that idea. If, if parents know their, their child is going back to school the night before they can sit down and go through some, some social stories about what's going to happen. That, that would be, I think, a really great way to connect in a positive way to your student. It yeah. can all be positive instead of stressful. Hurry, we have to do this. Here's the task we have to do or you're going to fail. It doesn't have to feel like yeah. that at all. It can just be all right. positive and hopeful. Yeah, and just kind of bonding over what to expect. You know, this is a new, here we are with a, with a new kind of um, school experience. And I just want to make sure that I share everything I can with you about it so, so you know what's coming. It's going to be great. With my one daughter, um, my youngest, she would get a lot of anxiety with school starting. And so and I would say, you know what? I think your teacher is probably nervous too because she has she's getting a whole class of kids and doesn't know your names yet. And all you know, and we would talk about it and just like we're all nervous going to school. And you know, yeah, talking about what it's going to be so that they know you understand, you have empathy, and and we're all in this, like even your teacher is probably nervous. <laughs> the principal and, yeah. and I love the parents. Driver. I love the parents' ability to throw in there. And what if something really great happened? Like what if you were nice and talkative and social with everybody and you found a best friend? What if yeah. that you know, and, and get them thinking, oh, not just the bad things could happen. Right. What if, what if, things. what if good stuff? Yeah. That's pretty cool. That is cool. Yeah. So what, what's a big win for you and your tutors at Progress Parade, what do you love to see the most? Yeah, I think the thing that makes me the most excited is just when I'm talking to a parent and I'm like, I have the perfect match for your student. You know, like, I'm like, we are going to rock this. And I have those moments and I just love um, knowing that the perfect match really is a perfect match, like not only for the student, but also for the teacher, because teachers have a lot of experiences in the school setting of failure too, of just not being stretched too thin of not, you know, especially um, special education teachers. A lot of times there's so many different needs in the same classroom and they know what they need to do, but they just don't have the time to give the student the one-on-one support. So being able to create a win for both the teacher where they get to see, this is like why I'm doing what I'm doing as a teacher, like is, is helping these students have these moments of overcoming their learning challenges and just knowing that I'm that that is going to create that for the teacher and also for the student just really is why I love to do this. Yeah, I love not not all teachers are mentors, but all all mentors build a relationship of influence and have a, a personal connection. And you can have good coaches or bad coaches, but whatever the relationship is, a good mentor, someone that connects and helps them be better. And that's far beyond just the content that you know, math or English or science really well. 
Um, yeah. Really connect. It sounds like that relationship between your tutor and the student is really important. It's so important. The you know, it's really the the heart of what we do is just building that trust, helping a student have a positive experience, having an empowering experience where we celebrate successes rather than just constantly say, like, well, we didn't do this right, you didn't do that right, like failed that one. Creating an experience where there really is like a success is, is a huge part of of any successful um tutoring or mentoring relationship. Yeah, I, I think. A lot of us as parents and mentors want to give them encouragement and tell them you're great. You're doing great. You're just fine. The reality is they need evidences that they're enough. Just talking is cheap. If we can't provide an environment in a way that actually gives them evidences that they're making it, we're not doing our job as tutors or mentors or coaches or teachers or therapists. So. Yeah, it really is about the journey of the student and seeing that and they and and rather than getting help from us as tutors, it's really about them seeing that they really have the tools that they need to succeed without us. And and our favorite thing is when a tutor comes and says, you know what, they don't need me anymore. And they're yep. doing great. And it's going to be hard to let go, but they've learned everything they need to learn. They don't know all the content, but that's not really what they needed. They needed to learn they could be a good student. They needed to learn how to manage their anxiety and their time, their soft skills, their study skills. Um, that's what our tutors do a lot of, a lot of in, um, in their working with our students. So. Yeah. The best moments when you tutor yourself out of a job, that's like, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the big win. Yep. That's how we feel too. We tell our students, yep. we don't want you here <laughs> Yeah, at our school. We, we don't want you here because that means, yep. you know, you're still needing help and support, but we're glad you're here and we love you. Yeah. We would love it if you didn't need us anymore. Yeah, definitely. Well, we love what you do. We love your website. Do you want to tell tell yeah. everyone how to find you and and a little bit about like logistics? Yeah, how it works. Sure. Yeah. So progressparade.com is our website. Um, if you visit progressparade.com, you'll see book a free consultation that actually comes straight to me. So um, if if somebody wanted to talk more with me about anything we discussed today or had any questions, they could book a free consultation or there's a little contact button too. If they don't want to have a full on phone conversation, but just have a quick question, they could submit a contact form through that contact button as well. And what ages do you serve? We really, um, again, cause it's about the matches. We definitely do um, kindergarten through 12th grade. We'd make the right match with the tutor who has the right skill set, And then we do college age two. We don't do as much like as we've been talking about college content tutoring, but we do a lot of college executive functioning coaching. So helping students make the transition to college, to be more independent, to organize their schedule, to manage their schedule, to manage long-term projects and more independence. So we do coaching for that too. Nice. That's excellent. And, and that really is, you can be really smart and capable in certain subjects, but going to college, it's, there's a lot more skill sets that are, that you need to be able to be a successful college students. So I love that you, you approach that. I love it when, yeah. parents, when parents focus on the avocations outside of the actual credit or diploma. Those students tend to do a lot better in their education yeah. long term. So. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And I I, I appreciate this because I think it takes some of the, the blocks that we might have around getting tutoring. And you provide a really easy way to, to get matched with somebody that's going to be a good fit. With learning differences, having somebody that is skilled at, at those types of issues that come up, it's, it makes a difference and not every team yeah. is, is skilled in that or understands what's going on when there yeah. are differences. So 
well, as a parent, you can't be an expert in everything, right? So it's like, you can't do it all yourself. So um, it's, you know, that's- And you could do it perfectly, but because you're the parent, it's not going to, the kid won't Yeah, respond. it lands totally differently. Yeah, the, the, your kid will be like, no, not interested in hearing this from you. You don't know what you're talking about, mom. <laughs> we hear that all the time. Well, thank you so much. Thank um, you. To our listeners, we, we hope that you found some value here and some tips and ideas and maybe different ways to think about it. And we hope you have an amazing week. Take care. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Autism and Neurodiversity with Jason and Debbie. If you want to learn more about our work, come visit us at jasondebbie.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-D-E-B-B-I-E.com. 